0: Anderson Afternoons, the podcast. Joining us now, Marion Willis, founder and director at St. Boniface Street Links. Marion, good afternoon. Good afternoon thank you very much for joining us here really appreciate it so we even had our police chief danny Smythe on earlier here uh talking about the idea of decriminalizing drug possession for personal use this is something police chiefs uh including ours across the country think is a good idea they're calling on the uh feds to do it what do you think
1: well i think it's a good idea I think that um, our police have been placed in a very unfortunate position of having to be social workers, mental health workers. Um, I think that uh, decriminalizing doesn't necessarily mean to legalize. I think it would free the police up to work much harder on suppression. And um, I think that uh, what, we, what we're experiencing now, where we've sort of come to that place where we're realizing Um, that uh, it really is, like addictions really should be treated as the health issue that it is. And I think in addition to decriminalizing um, uh, small amounts for personal use, um, I also think we should be looking, though, um, at a plan. And I think as a part of that plan, even taking a look at the Mental Health Act and seeing um, if there's uh, amendments required there. And looking at how we create a plan and put the systems in place, so that if we are going to decriminalize, with the notion that it's far better—and I agree with us—it's far better to stream users into uh, places where they can receive a therapeutic response, as opposed to just locking people up, where there's uh, there's no ther- there's no therapeutic value. Nothing good comes from being locked up. People just come out and use more. Uh, so. Something more treatment-oriented is a great plan, but we need the plan with all the systems in place that could make this a successful undertaking. And it isn't going to be something that just, you know, justice should do uh, on its own. I think we need to look at this from a much more multi-systemic, a much more sort of complex uh, perspective and let, for once and for all, let's sort of get this multi-systemic, multidisciplinary response going, so that uh, we're all resourced uh, effectively and know uh, what our role is. And, and um, you know, I think the police have been very clear from the beginning that they cannot arrest their way out of the meth crisis. Um, uh, there's a lot of criticism of police right now over uh, the way that. Um, and rightfully, so, the way some of the people in mental health crisis have been uh, managed and handled. And I just think it's all a consequence of police actually being required to take on responsibility that isn't theirs to take on. They're not trained to be social workers and counselors. I'm not trained to be a police officer, but I'm yeah. very good at working in addiction.
0: Right. And I agree with you completely. And, you know, we hear that term, defund the police, which to most people doesn't mean that, uh, to most people and certainly to me. And I've, I've said this, uh, I had a column in my, uh, Sun column last weekend and I, I got a lot of heat on emails from people and, and I don't in any, when I, I agree with you that I think we need to get police doing what police do best and get them away from pretending to be a social worker out there and dealing with some things that they should not have to deal with and and i agree that this you know decriminalizing of uh simple drug possession uh could you know be the beginning of that it's it's the time to look at everything and decide the best approach going forward i think is the best way for me to to put it that's how i feel anyhow Marion.
1: i i and i'm hoping you know that finally you know, maybe all of us will come together, you know, all the various sectors that are stakeholders in this, and that we can actually come up with a very comprehensive plan. And a big piece of that plan has got to be Public education, so that the public understands, this isn't to decriminalize. Doesn't mean to necessarily legalize. It's you know, drug trafficking is still going to be uh, illegal, and people are going to go to prison for trafficking uh, cocaine and uh, fentanyl and meth or any illicit drug. It really frees Mm -hmm. the police up to go and do what they do best on the suppression, and it leaves the prevention and the intervention to uh, other organizations that are best positioned to deliver those services. It, you know, we've through Moorberg House, we have demonstrated in spades, you know, the great outcomes when you actually focus, when you when you treat addiction as a mental health issue and you really focus on getting to the root cause of the addiction and treating it. You know, and ours is a two-year continuum, and we're demonstrating about a sixty-three percent success rate. That is far, far above the national average. So there's all kinds of evidence. Portugal, for example, has uh, produced some some very good evidence base for uh, this this type of an approach. So it's not about just saying, "Well, you know, we give up and uh, drugs are legal." Now, that's that's not what this is, and that's not what the public mm-hmm. should think. Uh, this is really about, uh, you know, streaming uh, people, uh, taking a much more therapeutic approach and a recovery approach and freeing the police up to really focus their efforts on suppression. And I don't, and I do not agree with defunding the police, by the way, either. I don't think it should come out of police budgets. I don't think Mm -hmm. that police are being funded to be mental health workers and social workers. Um, I think that the lesson in this and you know that and it's 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 a a message that government needs to hear you know this siloed approach that's existed for far too long now is one of the reasons why we're facing the challenges that we face we our systems are so broken and so fragmented it's all human rights based you know and i just think that we need uh, we need an approach that creates a better balance of human rights and and, and responsibility, right?
0: Mm-hmm. And, yeah. uh, I think I think it's uh, I think it's an opportunity. Program. Yeah, I'm I, mm-hmm. I sorry to interrupt, uh, Mary. I think I think it's an opportunity, and and I hope we take the opportunity and look at everything and and decide a a, a better way forward. Hey, while I've got you, um, over at uh, uh, St Boniface Street Links, you mentioned the uh, meth crisis. From your perspective, how is it out there? Is it getting worse, the same, better?
1: You know what? Um, it it kind of. The, let's just say, let, let's just say, the drug crisis is far worse. It's horrible. Um, meth has kind of dried up on the street right now. Uh, there's been a real dry period, and that's because the Winnipeg Police Service has done an amazing job of seizures and. Uh, I guess one of the benefits, if you can think of the upside of COVID, it's made it very difficult for the cartels to get, you know, the big supplies of meth into this country. So there isn't as much meth, but, you know, uh, with every addict, they just find something else to replace it with. And for whatever reasons, uh, we seem to be able to get lots of fentanyl. So it's fentanyl here now, and uh, and it's, it's devastating. Um, we, we are seeing, we're reaching, our outreach has seen, um, four times the number of people uh, this year as uh, they have last year or in prior years. I mean, it's an, an astounding uh, increase.
0: Hmm. On fe- in fentanyl specifically?
1: Fentanyl mostly, uh, but fentanyl, morphine. Um, there is some uh, crystal meth, but it's quite expensive. And uh, so uh, it's mostly fentanyl right
0: now. Wow, four times. Hmm. Marion, thanks well, a lot yeah, for this. Really appreciate your help.
1: Send you one of our outreach reports. that will knock your socks off.
0: Please do, and um, and we'll get you back on when we have more time, but we're right out of time right now. Thanks a lot for this, Marion. Right. I appreciate it.
1: You're so welcome. All right.
0: Mm, bye-bye. All right. So in just a moment, we're going to talk to former City Councilor Jay Edie on Jeff Courier's show this morning. Current city councilor Scott Gillingham was on chair of the finance committee finance chair and and he had this to say about yesterday's court decision basically ordering the city to pay back impact fees that they took uh, the city took from builders and developers here's uh, Gillingham on that
2: the the advice was that cities with the, the city councils within their right to to bring in this fee and develop this bylaw and, um, and, and, um, and in fact, if you read the judgment, um, a measure of that is, is true. They weren't wrong on that. The city does, council does have the right. It's ultimately the, the way it was done. And, um, there was, a, I'll use the term a lack of specificity or a problem with the specificity of how the funds will be used. So that, that's what ultimately, um, you know, cause the judge to come down and say it, it's deemed it an invalid, indirect tax. Um, but uh, my, my view now is that it's important that the city of Winnipeg work with the development and building community to make sure that um, that the, the costs of growing the city, the costs of building the city are, are equally or fair, fairly shared
0: current city councilor scott gillingham joining us now on the phone former city councillor jay eddie jay good afternoon hi hal how are you doing excellent thanks for your time today i really appreciate it um yesterday you and i were communicating back and forth you were going to dig into the decision did you see anything in there that you wanted to mention off the hop here well, no,
3: I think now that I've... And I still haven't read the entire judgment. Uh, it's, it's you know, hundred and some odd pages, and right. it's a tough slog to read, but I think I got to the salient points, um, and, and I heard your interview with Scott Gillingham earlier. I think it's clear mm-hmm. from the judgment that the city uh, council has the legal authority to enact this kind of impact fee legislation. Uh, the problem was that a lot of the bylaw was very unclear um, in terms of where the fee was uh, when the fee that was collected where does it go it's supposed to be going back to provide amenities in the community it's collected from but the bylaw doesn't really say that so I think that's what the judge essentially threw out he didn't quash the entire bylaw but he he invalidated the, uh, the actual fee collection so um, I think the city has to go back um, I was talking Scott Gillingham is my counsellor. I was talking to him last night, and I said, you know what they should do is repeal that bylaw and then start from square one and this time sit down um, with the development and building community and work together on on a new piece of legislation that is clear and uh, and concise and is meant to to achieve uh, what they intended to achieve. Uh, this current bylaw uh, was rushed through council in a hurry. Um, When I read it originally, I thought it was very poorly written and there was a lot of sections that weren't clear, particularly with infill development, which should not be subject to an impact fee. And uh, and this is what happened. You pass a piece of legislation in a hurry and uh, mistakes get made and then you get caught out. So uh, I think more time needs to be taken
0: you're going right where i wanted to go because that's why i played that clip of gillingham there because he says at the end we need to sit down now with builders and developers and work together to come up with something but why wasn't that done in the first place right i mean isn't isn't that kind of always the best approach we've wasted so much time now
3: yeah that's right it should be done this is uh, the you know the legislation is complex and I, I had, was at a, an open house meeting a few months before this bylaw was passed by council. There a number of developers who were there, and I talked to them. And they were really frustrated that they were reaching out to the city, and in particularly to the mayor, to offer, you know, let's sit down and work on this together. The Developers are not necessarily opposed to an impact fee. It exists right. in many cities across Canada. But, in the cities where it is in place, uh, the city government there worked with the development community to enact legislation that everybody understands and everybody can live with and that unfortunately didn't happen in in this case for whatever reason uh, Mayor Bowman was in an unseemly rush to pass something and and when you when you get into that situation, you usually end up making lots of mistakes and and this is what happened with this court decision they there's so much of this bylaw that is unclear that uh, the judge ruled that they can't any longer they have to refund any all the money they've collected so um, uh, you know and that's and say i suggested to scott last night in our ch- chat best thing is to repeal the bylaw completely and then sit down with a fresh page and start all over again and this time bring the stakeholders in to help draft a piece of legislation that that works for everyone.
0: So. And all of this goes to something we've discussed many times on our air here. There seems to be a communications problem, an issue with communications at City Hall, whether it's between mm-hmm. the mayor and councillors, some councillors, others or in this case, builders and developers, uh, you know, police and the whole pension. There are so many examples where, aren't they better at a table trying to work out something that, you know, is fair and equitable for everybody, but it seems like stuff is always trying to get rammed through and a decision is made before the, uh, you know, the parties are are talked to.
3: Yeah, I think there have been some examples of that happening, and and let me make it clear, in my 26 years there... uh, I, I plead guilty to some, some of that happening during my time where there was, you know, a rush and what have you. Mm-hmm. But, you know, sitting on the sidelines now, I can see like on the impact fee thing, for example, uh, and a few other things, there was no effective communication strategy uh, after they developed a piece of legislation. And so it didn't get sold properly. And, and, and the stakeholders in the piece weren't invited to the table to help craft uh, a piece of legislation that would work for everyone so um, you know that's uh, i think a lot of the blame falls on on elected people there and not the administration but uh, yeah. uh, you know hopefully hopefully lessons are learned and that uh, like an impact fee policy is not bad public policy um, i would have voted for an impact fee bylaw uh, but not this one but uh, yeah. it's it's sound public policy but you got to it's complex. You've got to bring all your stakeholders in and develop something that everybody understands up front. It's clear where this money is supposed to be going. Uh, you know, it's not meant for general revenues. It's meant to provide services in these expanding communities. And, and once you clear all that up in legislation, then you've got something everybody can work with, and you're not going to have problems.
0: Mm -hmm. hey Jay uh quick yeah final uh question and a quick answer if I can please because I'm up against the news here at two o'clock uh in about half an hour I'm going to be talking to a woman who paid a ten thousand dollar impact fee and the contract she signed with the builder says if the legal dispute wasn't resolved within a year she wouldn't get the money back and it's after a year now she's I guess legally not going to get the money back sounds like she might fight that what do you think of that and apparently it's been a pretty common practice with builders
3: well, I'm not a lawyer, but I would I would think that uh, that wouldn't stand up in any court. The judge the judge in this case has already ruled that the city has to refund all of that money they've collected in impact fees. So, I mean, the builder collects it and pays it to the city, as I understand it. The builder doesn't keep it. it it's, it's paid by the builder to the city, and, you know, they recoup the lot coverage. In any event, I think the city will be refunding everyone who has paid the fee, uh, now, let's say I'm not a lawyer, and this isn't a legal mm-hmm. opinion. Yeah. But I'm thinking that yeah, yeah. Uh, that this woman is uh, should not have to worry, as long as there's a record that she's paid it. Uh, I think she's going to get her money back plus interest, and it may come directly from the city of Winnipeg, and not from the builder. But uh, but she'll have to seek you know legal advice on that. I'm not going sure. to be a lawyer, but uh, my guess no, no. Is that, that she's uh, she's in the clear
0: yeah i would think just even ethically you know the money should go back right. to the people that paid it but yeah, all right well, hey listen jay and thank-
3: the judgment anyway so
0: yeah jay really appreciate your time thanks a lot okay thanks Hal. have a good holiday joining us now dr joel kettner professor of medicine at the university of manitoba and manitoba's former top doctor dr joel good afternoon Good afternoon, Hal. Thank you very much for for doing this. Love getting you on. Um, First of all, 10 straight days now. No new cases of COVID-19 today again. Only four active cases in the province. Uh, That's the best stretch since the pandemic began. Um, Can we continue to keep this city and this province one of the safest places in the world when it comes to COVID-19, do you think?
4: Hal, you're asking me to predict the future. That's a tough job. Uh, (laughs) Well, you know, uh, first of all, viruses, especially this one, and influenza and others like that, very hard to predict uh, the way they uh, come and go and and whether they're kind of in the population now, but we're just not seeing enough so that people are coming forward to be tested. You know, I don't think we can conclude that there are no uh, infections uh, or uh, or no virus in Manitoba. Um It's usually estimated that for every case we find, there's 10 that, um, you know, we don't know about for a variety of reasons. But, uh, you know, clearly this this indicates a very low level of uh, circulation right now, Uh, unless everyone who's got symptoms is, uh, you know, refusing to come forward for testing. I think that's unlikely. But, you know, safety is an interesting question. Uh, For example, in this disease, most manitobans are safe now and will be uh... because what we're seeing is that the severity of illness and death is in a very small subsection of the population so you know if you're under twenty uh... probably almost a zero percent probability if you're between twenty and sixty uh... very low over ninety five percent of population of uh, infections sorry ninety five percent of deaths in canada have been in people over the age of 60 and most of those with other chronic conditions and and risk factors. So it's important to put uh, all of that in perspective before we start asking uh, or answering questions about safety. Now, what uh, what I think is going to be important as we go forward is how do we figure out how to balance uh, protection of those who are really at significant risk um, while trying to normalize uh, everyday life, and um, and it's not clear yet what the different strategies are with regard to what is the long term goal of that. And um, I my concern is is you know when I think of what kind of a of a world do I want to live in, or my children or grandchildren want to live in or whatever people might be calling the new normal. Uh, Of course, I want it to be a a Manitoba that is reasonably safe from serious disease and illness, uh, which, of course, right now is mostly every other cause more than COVID-19. But I also want them to live a normal life as much as possible. I, I don't want my kids to go to school where they're, you know, separated from other kids and told they can't go, you know, near them uh, or, where masks are expected to be worn everywhere all the time in the community, or I can't see their faces, I can't see them smiling. it's very difficult to give personal health care or other services when those barriers are in place. Um, so, I really hope we'll find a way to to get back to a, a true normal and not and not what I'm thinking more of as a new abnormal, which I think could settle in uh, for a long time if we don't think very carefully about what is necessary and what isn't for reasonable protection of uh, of infection.
0: I've been thinking time? a lot about I've been thinking a lot about that too uh, Dr. Kettner. You know, we talk about new normal. Will we ever see the old normal again and what will that new normal look like and uh, to the point that you just made i i think we've worked really hard right to uh keep that curb flat but have we worked smart you know we basically shut everything down for a for an extended period of time and obviously we learn more about the the virus as we go but did we have to because as you pointed out older uh, people are the ones uh, that are you know most at risk uh, of dying with this with this virus and so yeah i i wonder what the future is going to look like
4: well i hope what the future is going to look like is as i think you're suggesting you know a more reasonable balance of the approach where we focus and some people call it a risk-based approach which is we focus you know on those as you said who are really at at high risk for a serious illness that's who's going to take up space in the hospital uh, and that's who's going to die whether it's premature death or or, or death near the end of their life it doesn't matter we should we should be able to focus our protection on those at highest risk while while freeing if I can use that word the rest of us back to a, an old normal or a, or a reasonable normal now, I think all of that is possible i don 't want to look backwards right now and ask you know whether we could have done this differently or not. There will be mm-hmm. a lot of opinions about that at yeah. any time that, but we 've got big decisions to make now on a go forward basis and and where my leaning is on this, especially if you take a long term approach to this, is we've got we got a balance. Um, uh, let me put it another way I don't I'd like us to be less fearful of the virus less fearful of an infection an infection in itself is not a big problem and for the vast majority of us it's actually a mild infection maybe even milder than influenza um, especially for young children I mean the deaths from influenza every year Uh, you know, 15, 20 deaths in children. We're not seeing anything like that from from this virus. So in some ways, ironically, children are at less risk from this than they are from influenza. And we don't close the schools for four or five months during the flu season, and I hope we never will, um, because, again, you know, in a probability perspective, it's not that high a risk. So what I'm hoping we'll do is we'll be less fearful will will we won't be afraid to you know say hi to our neighbors and 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 without a mask on and even not fearful of getting too close to them if you have no symptoms the probability of transmitting the disease is very very low and what i hope we'll do and some people may find this uh, you know um, a little bit of a of a, of an unusual point of view But I actually would be in favor now, I think. I've got to think more about this and consider various aspects. I've just uh, essentially going back to normal now, like kids go to school in the normal way, no distancing, no masks, you know, play sports where you come in contact with each other and tag each other. I'd actually like to see that more in other settings. And, of course, if you're elderly or you have Risk factors, that's different. Then you've got to protect yourself, and others need to protect you. But uh, if you're not in that category, uh, I think we should be going back to essentially normal life. People need to be educated. They have to know what their risks are. They have to govern themselves appropriately with regard to their risks. And, um, and I think we uh, would do better. And now this is the part that's controversial. I'm going to say this will be my last point, is long-term. Are we going to wait for a vaccine? There's lots of reasons that a vaccine might not be the answer, even if we get one. Um, Or are we going to do what we often do for other infections, naturally or not, is uh, let antibodies build up in the population through mostly very mild or asymptomatic infections, if that's going to happen. I'm not saying that. We should have chickenpox parties like they used to have, and everyone deliberately gets infected. I just don't think we should be as uh, afraid of it, especially for most of the population. So
0: That's again, was... without yeah, so again without looking back, and I agree. You know, you, hindsight's twenty twenty. Um, but going forward, you think that we need to get back to something real close to our old normal sooner than later? Yeah, I do. Hmm. I do. And I, I've got a quick question, and I appreciate least, you, you. Sorry, Hal, uh, I want to interrupt you yeah. one second.
4: Or at least let's have a full discussion about it. Sure. You know, there's going to be points of view that I haven't thought about, uh, but I'd really like to open up the discussion to consider all options now. And. Um, and not be afraid to talk about them and not be afraid to, to, to think about different ways to do this.
0: Yeah. Because I think we, you know, we've had this debate uh, about masks, for example, right? Um, mm. And you're right. The health officials in the province and the politicians have told us, you know, do this, do this, don't do this. And most people are doing that. And then when somebody doesn't, um, they become almost a target, you know, by the others. So, um, so here's a quick question for you. And I'm just curious about this. You used to have Dr. Rusin's job. If you were in that position, is it your call, or do you, uh, as a health official, as Manitoba's top top doctor, that position? Do you make the decision on going forward, or is it the politicians involved in that decision? Or I'm just curious how that works because you were you were there with uh, H1N1.
4: Now, well, the Public Health Act of Manitoba is very clear on this question, uh, which is if, if the public health officer thinks that there should be a restriction of travel or restriction of uh, gatherings or closing down of public uh, premises, that has to be approved by the Minister of Health. So, in other words, for big decisions like that, if it's regulated, in other words, if it's a directive or it's mandated, the the chief public health officer does not have the authority to do that. And I think that's a good thing, because these big decisions, especially when they infringe on rights, which are now in the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, they value-based decisions. Yes, the, 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 the public health experts need to give advice to government about what the health risks are and what is the potential effectiveness of these different interventions, but really the public needs to decide through their elected leaders, you know, what are their values, what are they willing to restrict in order to, uh, you know, um, prevent cases. You know, we get 75 motor vehicle deaths a year. Now, I don't want to compare that with seven deaths from COVID, because maybe we would have had more deaths. Uh, probably we would have had more, I just don't know how many more we would have had without the lockdown. But, you know, the public accepts 75 deaths a year because of the importance of motor vehicle travel. Um, with the impact of these decisions and the lockdown, which were enormous and could have been predicted, um, I hope that the government leaders, on advice of public health officials, um, Thought this through, consulted appropriately, and took the accountability and the responsibility for making these decisions that are so has such a widespread impact on on uh, everyday life. When I was a chief public health officer, and even today as a public health physician, I do not have the expertise to say what's going to be the effect on children if they don't go to school for four months, or what's going to be the effect on the economy, uh, or many many other things, which were Unprecedented impacts from public health policies. So, mm-hmm. I I think really um, the, the responsibility and accountability for those big decisions um, should be made by by the people themselves through their elected government, not not an expert in
0: public health, not not alone. Right. Mm-hmm. And so uh, and, and I. Yes, no, absolutely, and I hear what you're saying about having, I I am always a fan of having a discussion, let's talk about it, which is essentially what you're saying, but then I look at the states and I see, you know, over 3 million cases of COVID-19, 140 or 150,000 people have died from it, and some will say they opened up, they went back to some kind of normal too soon so what do you uh, is are you would you say that in some parts of the u.s or are you just saying that here because we have relatively no low numbers of COVID 19.
4: no i i i well, of course i'm talking about manitoba that's the that's the domain i know the best
2: mm-hmm.
4: but even across canada i think i hold the same view uh, as i've expressed now, I hate to or I don't like to make comment on other countries. Sure. Where I feel I yeah. don't know enough about the, the, the factors. For example, I have a feeling and have some information that um, some, many, I don't know to what degree of death uh, are are because of the health care system. Because, you know, a lot of people have survived COVID-19 uh, because they're getting good health care. It might just be oxygen and intravenous rehydration, but if you can't get into a hospital because you don't have insurance and you have to go to a county hospital and there's no room or for a variety of other factors, that's going to change the mortality rate quite significantly, potentially. Mm-hmm. And there's higher rates of death, I understand, amongst blacks and Hispanics, uh, you know, for poverty and other reasons that I've just said. Well, um, that may also be contributing to the to the death rate. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm not ready to sort of draw conclusions about, you know, right. whether it's because of uh, opening up too quickly or or, too, or not enough sort of uh, cooperation with with the instructions. It's um, it's complex, and I and I really wouldn't mm-hmm. want to draw yeah. those conclusions not yet, anyways.
0: Sure. Hey, last quick question. Back to uh, who makes the decisions on public health. Did you, when you were Manitoba's top doctor, did you ever have a run-in with a politician or a disagreement with a politician without giving names or details? I'm just curious. Well, uh,
4: I don't know if I'd use the word run-in, but absolutely. Um, I gave advice that wasn't always accepted or there were decisions made by government that w- did not uh, I was not consulted on. But this is... I'm not criticizing or complaining. Um, yeah. Uh, this... You know, I'm I'm, uh, I'm respectful of the mm-hmm. fact that all of these decisions, even smaller ones, uh, are the accountability. it's the gov- I wasn't elected by the people, uh, and you know, I was hired at the pleasure of the Queen, um, uh, who I signed my contract with, uh, because that's the nature of of the job of a public health leader is to give advice to government, accept that advice is just from the medical point of view, there's many other considerations to be made, and then communicate uh, with the public. Now, um, was I in awkward situations sometimes where I had to communicate something that I didn't completely feel enthusiastic about or, or be quiet about some decisions that were made? Yes, of course, but if you follow one simple rule, then you can sleep at night. And that is never tell a lie. Never tell a lie to the public or anyone else. Um, So um, that's what I did. That doesn't mean I told the whole truth, but I didn't lie. And when I was asked to do something that I could not do, uh, I said no, and someone else did it. Yeah, I
0: don't know if that answers your question, but... No, it does. uh, Hey, Doc, I've really got to take a break here. I really appreciate this. Uh, Love having this. uh, This has been a great chat, and I really appreciate you doing this. But I I haven't taken a break, and I'm getting close to the 2.30 news. I'm going to get fired. I'm, I'm going to be looking for a job if I don't take a break soon. So thank you very much. You're welcome.